Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. So, Patrick, I don't know if you know this, but October is a busy awareness month, especially for the topics we talk about here on this podcast. Um, it is ADHD Awareness Month, it's OCD Awareness Month, it's Depression Awareness Month, Dyslexia Awareness Month, and it's Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month, which is what we're going to be diving into today. So I do want to just offer kind of a gentle disclaimer. If you are in the process of trying to get pregnant or recently experiencing experienced a pregnancy loss, do take care of yourself while listening to this episode because we will be talking about pregnancy loss. So first, I just streamlined through the intro. Patrick, anything to add to the intro before I introduce our guest? I have nothing to add. I appreciate okay. laying the groundwork. So that's where I feel like there's a role, role reversal. There's a role <laughs> reversal happening here. Okay. So tired. I, I told Megan and Kylie before we got started, been up since 3 a.m. So I'll be here in existence, but maybe also not appreciate how you name how you can come into this space however you are um yes yeah, so we have kylie on today who is you go by doc do you go by doctor because you're an occupational therapist right how do you yeah. introduce yourself um well my students call me dr hanish but okay. <laughs> kylie is perfectly fine okay so dr hanish or kylie is an occupational therapist autistic adhd -er, um newly diagnosed, you mentioned, and you also run, you started a nonprofit around pregnancy loss to help both, I think, to help families, but also to help educate the medical field on, around how they can be walking through families and people walking through that process better. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah. So we're, we're supporting families who have experienced different types of losses. Okay. Um, and then there's a lot of trauma that can be done, um, like with healthcare providers and especially Absolutely. in the hospital. And so they don't receive training in their formal education. And so how can we kind of share information um, to help them be more confident in working with bereaved families and then therefore reducing trauma and other negative mental health outcomes? I love that so much. Um, I think I've mentioned it on here a few times, but I, I used to work as a therapist in an OBGYN clinic. And this was an area where it was evident there was just so much growth for the medical community um, in how how this process is is handled. And to, yeah, I love your lens of reducing trauma. Um, so yeah, I'm backing up Bird Eye View a little bit. We connected because you emailed me. We were asking folks for like topic ideas and you emailed me with four or five wonderful ideas, but one that caught my eye was autistic grief. And um, I've heard, we've listened, we've heard words. <laughs> we've heard other followers ask for us to cover autistic grief as well. I think it is a really important and complex topic. So we're going to be looking at that today. We're going to anchor in the experience of pregnancy loss. Um, oh, partly you reached out because you heard me mention that I had had two pregnancy losses on the podcast, um, which you have a good ear because I think it was a really passing comment. But I also think once you've lived through pregnancy loss, you hear it when people talk about it. 
Um, okay, that was a long-winded intro. Um, to anchor our conversation today, we do have a broad framework we're going to follow. I'm going to make it explicit because I think structure can be helpful. We're going to talk through different phases of the pregnancy loss experience. Um, and I think this is really important to think through it in phases in the sense that this is actually something we know helps people walk through the grief process is when they can storytell and narrate their experiences. So we'll be talking about the acute phase of coming to know um, the processing around that, the postpartum experience, and then grieving itself. And when we get to that fourth part, we're going to globalize it to talk more broadly about autistic grief. Does it sound like I have that right, Kylie, of what we talked yeah. about? Okay. And I think, and I think just so for other people who are listening that have not experienced pregnancy loss or maybe have, but other types of loss, like loss isn't only death mm -hmm. um, and that you can take what we're talking about and apply it to your own situation um, because it will be in some way relatable. It just may not be the exact same story. Um, but there's, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be just like, well, lessons learned and then just like exploring for yourself, like, well, how did I react and what, you know, my interactions with that? I don't know. It's complicated for sure. Yeah. And I, I love how you're, you're, yeah, broadening it of there is, yeah. Okay. Struggling with words this morning. Um, Kylie, I think I'm trying to figure out how to get into our conversation. Should I just hand it over to you? Um, yeah, I mean, you can maybe just ask me to share, share, share how you like, like that, how I learned and how I react. And like, we can just jump yeah. into, I'm fine. I don't, I don't. Okay. okay. Yeah. I'm not great with transitions either. So <laughs> yeah, that whole social lubricant thing. Okay. So Kylie, can we go back to starting kind of at the beginning for you of your experience, um, your experience around pregnancy loss, but then also how you got interested in this topic of autistic grief and then supporting families and people through this process. Yeah. So yeah, I'll first start just by sharing, like setting the stage of like my situation. So um, in 2005, I was pregnant with my first child, um, you know, everything was fine for the most, you know, up until then I was 35 weeks pregnant, um, which is like five weeks before yeah. due date. Yeah. And, um, I started bleeding and because it's my first child, like you don't know what's normal and what's not normal. And, um, and so my midwife told me that it was like, Oh, you're, you probably just lost your mucus plug. Um, and so I didn't, I didn't think anything about it. I had no awareness of baby movement because no one told me to pay attention to it. And there's this like um, myth that babies slow down when they're, you know, mm -hmm. getting bigger because there's less room, which is not true. But, you know, there was, there was no talk about pay attention to baby movement or anything. So I wasn't even aware of baby movement, but thinking back, I'm like, yeah, I didn't really feel him move. So when I went to the doctor the next day, um, they couldn't find a heartbeat. They did an ultrasound. And at that point told me that he had passed away. And um, I went into immediate shock. Uh, I was by myself. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what that meant. Um, and it was just like, I kind of, I feel like I really left my body. Um, yeah. And I... So I said, like, I, I said to the provider, I said, well, what am I supposed to do? Like, I didn't mm -hmm. just like, I just, I wanted to understand like, okay, my baby said, but then what happens, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, and I know I'd mentioned this to you before, but then I, you know, she says, well, maybe you could cry. And I was just like, no, that's not what I'm asking. I'm like, I'm asking for you to tell me what is going to happen? Um, because you, when you're that pregnant, you have to deliver your baby. Yeah. They're not, unless there's like a threat to your life, they're not going to do a C-section. Yeah. Um, 
but I don't even like how I'm like, how does the baby come out? Like, I don't. Yeah. yeah. So there was, I, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I pause there just that like, that's, that feels really powerful of in that moment, you needed to know what to expect to get back into your body, to get back to safety and how that was, that probably really threw the medical provider off of like, where's the emotion? We should process the emotion and then talk about logistics, which I think would be a very holistic way of moving through grief. But for you, I almost wonder if you needed to know what was what to expect to have enough safety to experience your emotions. Yeah, I mean, and it's like the, uh, right, like I'm just learning about myself, like with the autistic piece, the uncertainty brings so much more fear and anxiety in a situation that's already horrible. Yeah. Um, and, and from her, I got, I got nothing like, and I'm not going to go into details, but just like her obsessing about other things that were really not important. Um, and then she sent me home and I was already in labor actually, which is really odd. That is odd. It's, you know, and then even at the hospital the following day, very little telling me what was going to happen, what to expect. And then also like once your baby is born, there are lots of things. I mean, this is going to sound creepy to some people or strange or whatever, but like there's a lot of things you can do to make memories, to parent your child. Um, that It seems strange to talk about, but it's like your only time with your baby. It's it's really important. Yeah, I, the, I actually went to a training on on this about how important it is to touch your baby, be with your baby, take pictures with your baby. Um, and from an attachment lens, just how important that is. I, I literally have shivers talking about it um, and how rarely parents are given that opportunity and unless the medical system really understands how important that is. Yeah. And so it's just like, what I really needed was a guide. I mean, I needed the doctor or the nurses or a social, someone to be a guide. Yeah. It's like, you haven't been through this, but here's what's going to happen. And here are things that you can choose to do if you want to do that are, that could be helpful to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I didn't get any of that. And so like the trauma in the hospital was so horrible. Um, and then just also like when you're in that state of shock, and I think this is anyone, it's like, then they took my baby out of the room. They put him in a box in front of me, like to oh. take to the morgue. And it's like, but then also you're just like, I can't even talk. Like, I don't even know what to say. Um, and it's just like trauma upon trauma was really, really hard for me. Yeah. So I think that there was, from that point, like there was just too much without any guidance. And I just shut down and I shut down for like six months. Um, I don't remember very much from the six months following. So that was kind of, I would say the like acute phase, mm-hmm. but it, it lingered. Well, it lingered. I mean, part, going back to those post birthing rituals, it lingered partly because you didn't get, I mean, it, I'm sure it lingered for many reasons, but you didn't get to say goodbye. And I, like, I feel so much heaviness hearing you talk through that of there was, it, it was such um, ambiguous grief in the sense that there wasn't there wasn't a goodbye and there wasn't clarity around what was happening i i think for any human that's incredibly difficult and then throw being autistic on top of that it's just so much yeah so i mean do you do you want to share any of your experiences in terms of like finding out like that part um yeah I, I do, I, yeah, because I, I think there's some similar patterns. I think I also, and this is probably for my own self that I'm saying this, you know, I know that whenever we're comparing grief, that's not like a helpful thought experiment. Um, I think it also, for me, I do want to name that it feels like we're comparing apples and oranges in the sense that 
from my own experience and walking with a lot of people through this, first trimester miscarriage, 35-week stillbirths are very different experiences. Um, so I just, I want to name that. I did share some of that medical confusion. Um, I had two complicated first trimester miscarriages, one in which um, like my HCG kept going up, which is the hormone that says you're pregnant. So there's about a three week window where it's like, well, actually maybe you're still pregnant. And I kept getting conflicting messages from nurses when I would call like, well, your HCG is rising, but it's not doubling. Maybe there were twins and you lost one and another one's in there. So there's like a three or four week. I was getting a lot of mixed information. And that was really hard for me of like, am I supposed to be grieving right now? Am I still pregnant? <laughs> like, so just that. And and that's actually more common than I think people realize there can sometimes be this roller coaster, especially in early pregnancy of maybe I'm losing the pregnancy, maybe I'm not. Um, and then my second pregnancy was a missed, miss, a missed miscarriage, which means that um, a heartbeat never developed but the, miscar- the miscarriage didn't organically happen. So it wasn't identified till, till nine weeks. And then similarly, I didn't know what to ask and I didn't know what to look for. And I, what I was, re- I was reading a lot of things from like kind of natural childbirth and midwives. And I, I love the work of midwives. And at the same time, I think it can set up it's very much set on typical pregnancies, a lot of the advice. And as an autistic person, I got really attached to the right way of being pregnant and the right way of walking through a pregnancy loss. So I was, and this was my second pregnancy loss and we very much wanted to have another child. So I was convinced I shouldn't do a DNC because that might scar, it might cause scarring, which could impact future pregnancies. Um, that led to what I think at the end of it, I I essentially was like in my first trimester of hormones for 20 weeks because I started miscarrying at 12 weeks and then miscarried for eight weeks um, and should have sought medical advice, should have um, known what to ask for, but I didn't. And I'm kind of medically, I have some medical avoidance. So I didn't actually get help until I started developing an infection. <laughs> Um, so there was, there was a lot of uncertainty around those times. There was, I I wasn't advocating for myself very well. And I think partly because I was also very shut down. I, I responded by shutting down similarly. Um, I was confused by kind of the absence of emotions during that period. So yeah, that, that was, that was my experience. What? What happened when you went home from the hospital and when you made it through after, after those six months, you talked about six months of shutdown. What, yeah. what happened after that? Um, well, like I felt some, somewhere a shift inside of me of like the wanting to engage in life again. Hmm. Um, and then soon, and that was like a month of that maybe, or I don't, or maybe even less, but, um, and then I found out I was pregnant with my daughter. Okay. Um, which I hadn't had a chance to grieve Hmm. and then like grieve process, whatever. And then pregnancy after loss is just like anxiety on on steroids. It is, it is a, (laughs) yes, it is anxiety on steroids. It's yeah. crazy. Um, and so that was a whole nother thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and did that, again, I'm thinking about potential education. When I was in the medical setting, I did a lot of education of like, after pregnancy loss, there can be a lot of anxiety. You might find yourself resistant to attached to the baby growing. Yeah, yeah. Like, did Nothing. anyone you through yeah. that? Oh no, I, which is why I created everything I created. I created the guide yeah. for the hospital. I create, I mean, oh all this goodness. stuff because it's like when I, when I learned things like, well, people knew this, why didn't they tell me or yeah. why aren't they, you know? And it's like, I feel like the OBs 
are dealing with the waist down, they don't want to touch the emotion piece. Mm -hmm. And if there's a problem, they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Nobody, like, unless you get fortunate to have a therapist who knows about this, Mm -hmm. really, it's like luck. Um, No, it's just, there's nothing. You're just like going blindly into everything. Mm-hmm. And it's, you feel like you're going crazy. You can't talk yeah. about how you're going crazy because other people are going to think you're crazy. Well, and especially when you start showing and people start coming up to you. I mean, in je- like outside of pregnancy loss, right? Like I hated being pregnant be- when people would come up to me and start- touch me and like be like, are you so excited? And then I'm expected to have this positive emotion, right? That was just hard for me, even with my first pregnancy before any pregnancy losses. But throw in there like, I am so anxious and that, that that this baby will survive. Um, and then strangers are coming up and like expecting you to be all teary. Yeah. Did you have some of that experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it was my first also. So like when I was pregnant again, like, oh, is this your first? And then, oh, and then the gosh. whole question of was like, well, do I tell them about, well, I had a baby that died. Or do I not? And most of the time, personally, I feel like my business is my business and I don't need to tell other people my business. It's not, you know, but you feel like you're like kind of um, disrespecting your child. Absolutely. Um, you know? Absolutely. And it's and, it's a small talk, right? It's small talk that is so painful like i've i've since learned there's so many questions we ask pregnant people i've since learned not to ask like are you planning to have more is this your first like things that we think are small talk is not small talk and that's for non-autistic people too yeah yeah let alone throw in the like we hate small talk component yeah um i had a thought but it went um oh no i know what i was gonna say in the pregnancy after loss piece like there was like what you were starting to say is like denial of the pregnancy, mm-hmm. not attachment, which is called emotional cushioning. So you're like, oh, I like that term. I found that word somewhat recently and I'm like, oh, or term, you know? And so it's like, oh, there's an explanation of like fear of getting attached, mm-hmm. you know, because maybe the baby will die. And like the thought is, well, if I, if I'm not as attached and the baby dies, it won't hurt as bad, mm-hmm. which is a joke, but right. it's your brain trying to protect itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And just like, not, I didn't buy anything. Um, I didn't want to shower. I just, I was like, no, we're, no, we're not doing anything to prepare. Like, so I did nothing. Do, like, so even setting, like setting up a nursery or a lot no. of this, you do, you did none of that. The second time. No, because I did it the first time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had to take it all down. So that I was like, no way. Yeah. No, that that's actually really logical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And then I will just throw in here, like looking at her agenda. Um, her lose agenda is postpartum. So I will say after you lose a baby, even though your baby's not living, you're still in postpartum. But I was in such shock and like disorientation it didn't really matter but after my daughter was born my second pregnancy I went into I don't even know what it was undiagnosed for 10 years whatever I just suffered a lot but it was like total hypervigilance anxiety um but now I mean so I first diagnosed myself with like postpartum PTSD like a few years ago, but now I'm wondering is like, how much it is, is it like sensory overload of being a parent? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, or both. I, um, I would argue both. Yeah. And so stack on top of each other in really brutal ways. I was a disaster. I feel like, and this is nothing to like say bad things about my children, but becoming a parent broke me. Like it turned me crazy into mm-hmm. like my mental health it just was never the same. And, and I think part of it's like with things I used to do to self-regulate that I didn't know were self-regulation strategies were no longer possible once I have children. And just the feeling of like being claustrophobic and constantly on and all of that. So 
Yeah. I, Kylie, first of all, just thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying becoming a parent broke me. I think, again, like we've got to hold space for so many complex emotions. And I think this gets really tricky to talk about as a parent. Of course, we love our children. I'm so thankful for my children. I wouldn't have life any other way, but I feel similarly. I, they're like, so my children are now 13 and 10. So I'm through the thick of it, I would say. Those 10 years, especially those five years, when they were like two neurodivergent children, I didn't know were neurodivergent. No one was sleeping. Um, I, sensory seekers, like I was so, first of all, tired. And I think partly because of the pregnancies and complications, my body felt very broken. I wasn't sleeping. The, being touched and sounds all of the time, having a, having a hyperverbal toddler talking all the time, like for someone with a sensitive sensory system, that, that's a lot to absorb. And I think there can be a lot of shame, um, especially for mothers around like, why is it so hard? Yeah. So, and I also did the hypervigilant thing with, especially with my, with my second, like, well, What's and then your, you're, yeah. And you're worried they're going to die like constantly. Yep. Like, are they yep. breathing? Yep. Yeah. All that. So it's just so complex. All of it. Yeah. I imagine that there's this like really confusing simultaneously like held grief experience. Obviously I cannot relate, but where it's not only postpartum and grief and grief around loss, but then there's also grief around loss of identity because mm -hmm. As a parent, your identity is completely shifted and changing. And then you have to hold space for, I'm grieving the loss of who I was or what my role was or how I moved through the world. Now I'm also grieving this newfound role in my life. And, and I'm kind of, there, it sounds like there's a lot of shame inducing uh, experience too of like, I'm not getting it right. Why do I feel this way? That's so complicated and that's so heavy to have to carry. I love that, Patrick, that, that inclusion of identity. I don't know about your experience, Kylie, but like that, that was huge for me. I was kind of coming out of academia. I just finished my first graduate degree and I thought I was going to love being a stay-at-home mom. I, I now understand like how much of my identity comes through my interests and my values. Um, and I just, and, and my husband will talk about this. It felt like I was like trying to find something to orbit in those years like I remember I got really into sewing and I got really into like kombucha making all the DIY stuff, but none of it like felt robust enough. And then the shame of like, why am I not content as a stay at home parent? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I agree. And looking at other people, well, number one, like I couldn't leave the house very often because I was like obsessed with nap schedules and it just overwhelmed me and all that. But then all the other people like, oh, I'm taking my baby everywhere and all that. And then, and then, and then being a bereaved parent on top of that, huh. you can't go into normal spaces with parents and children because you're like, I've just been through like a trauma and you don't understand. And so it's way different. It's... Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like there's a whole nother parenting episode here. The, yeah. There's a, there's a lot. There's, there's a lot. lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Did, did you find community? Like, no, I did not. I was very isolated. It was super isolating. It was hard. Yeah. Um, and I also feel like I, my interests are not, yeah, I cannot be a stay at home mom. Like I am a disaster. And, um, I mean, I'm good at all the things and all that, but it's just like, there isn't enough like intellectual meaning and purpose. Yes. I literally and, said like, I feel like my brain is atrophying. Yeah. 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 And then not being able to connect to other parents, um, even like as kids go through school, like I'm so intense and I'm like wanting to talk about like things that I care about. And being able to talk to men more than women, because men mm -hmm. talk about things, rather than women yes. just small talk. Yep. So it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think mom culture has been the hardest place for me to integrate. Um, and I didn't understand it for so long. 
that that brought on a lot of shame and but yeah i have like a visceral response to to mom culture i i actually hosted last year an autistic moms group and it was the first time that i felt connected in a group with other moms yeah well and we're doing um well there's this woman uh moinia talser who wrote an article a qualitative study of sensory experiences of autistic mothers, which I recently read and was like, oh, this explains everything. And then with my students, um, we're doing, we kind of took that and one other article and did a survey with autistic mothers to just understand their experiences and right. Like they're all diagnosed post children. Um, and just all the things that are hard for Mm -hmm. them that are different than, I mean, parenting in and itself is really hard anyways, but you add the autistic piece and the sensory challenges and the, all that it's, it's fascinating. So I would love to see the, your research from that. I think, yeah, yeah I, I think, you know, I've shared this before, maybe it's changed by now, but if you Google like, you know, autism and pregnancy or anything related, yeah, to kind of birthing, you'll find a lot about like how to avoid having autistic children, but the experience of, of the person birthing who's autistic, like we're only now beginning to get curious about that experience. Yeah. And yeah, like, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say like the, there's like the pregnancy itself. So the interaction with Mm -hmm. medical providers, the, Mm -hmm. the sensory pieces in the hospital, the, all that. And then there's the after Mm -hmm. it's fascinating. But I even remember like with my last child, so I have two living children now, but um, I went in and it was like a very quick, like one hour I got to the hospital and he was born. But like I hired a doula for that one because I wanted to like reclaim my birth experience. And she and my husband were talking the whole time. And and I was like, um, I was like, just shut up. Because like when... <laughs> When I was there, like, I don't know, for me, I don't, I mean, labor for everyone's different, but I was very much in a meditative state. And yeah. I just like, why are you talking? And then I have the nurses like, oh, well, we need to do this. And what, are, like all these questions. I was like, I'm in labor. Like just nobody talk to me right now. Um, And even like the doula did not understand pregnancy after loss. And it was like telling me at eight months, well, you should, you should probably talk to your baby. You know, you're having a baby. And I was like, you have no idea. So, I mean, that's the other thing. It's just like, I'll just, um, my nonprofit, which I don't even think we said the name of is Return to Zero Hope. Um, and my husband made a film about our experience called Return to Zero that like is a feature film and has Mini Driver in it. Um, but oh, then wow. so she, she did an incredible job. So it's like emotionally our story, but with the nonprofit, um, we have all of these free webinars on there, mm-hmm. some for healthcare providers, some for parents, right? Just like educating and empowering people, which I think is so important. And so that's just my little shout Wait, out. No, please, please talk about your resources. I mean, these are the yeah. resources. And I love this, like you built what you would have wanted and needed. Um, actually, I feel like I see that a lot with autistic people. Like when we have an experience, it's like, okay, how can I build the thing I didn't get? And I love that you've done that. So yeah, please. Yeah. I mean, so like what resources for like, like, um, pregnant and, and birthing people. So, I mean, so first of all, I'll just say to like normalize this, um, we didn't, the film didn't come out until nine years after our loss, a long time. And the first like women's healing retreat I held, which is the first thing I did was nine years after the loss. So it was a long time. And so I tell people like, you know, I think people want to do something. They like, sometimes there is that urge. And for me, it took a lot of time until I feel it was, it's a very spiritual journey Mm -hmm. for me. Like I heard a voice in the shower that said, you should do a retreat. I'd never been to a retreat. I never hosted, didn't know anything, but it came from this email I received about, there was a lack of resources and a lack of connection of other bereaved parents. And um, 
And I hadn't had any support. It was like this isolated me and my husband for nine years. Um, we understood, but no one wanted to bring it up to us because they thought that it would bother us. And I mean, what if that's a whole nother thing. So yeah, with, with that, I did started doing that. And that's been an evolution um, and now has evolved. We do do in-person retreats. Mm-hmm. We're doing a provider retreat in 2024, which I'm so excited about because, I mean, first of all, providers after COVID, it's so hard, but also providers working in perinatal health, perinatal mental health, mm-hmm. it's hard and there's nowhere for them to go. So yeah, yeah. it's one of the highest burnouts professions among physicians is OBGYN, which like, I think makes Mm. so much sense. Um, People often think about like working in OBGYN is like, oh, it's all happy, but no, it's, I mean, it it can also be traumatizing for providers in a different way. But I love that you're thinking also through building resilience and community among providers. Yeah. So then, and then with the pandemic, I think there's been a lot of gifts um, with with being able to do virtual support groups, um, reaching people who are anywhere in the world, really, because a lot of people, even if there was an in-person group before the pandemic, a lot of people don't live in places where they can attend. And so we do a really unique um structure. And I think everything, my partner, Betsy, um, within, in the nonprofit, like we have really pooled our life experiences and sort of unknowingly created resources that are neurodivergent affirming and trauma sensitive and resilience focused. Um, and I think that what we offer is really unique. And so like with our support groups, they're six weeks closed support groups. So it's the same people. So you can build community, but it's, there's trying to create safety as much as possible. Um, We have a curriculum that we follow. Um, We walk people through things that you don't even know that you need to know about grieving and navigating life after loss. Um, And then the group itself is very structured. And like, we did this because I would never go to a support. I went once, like nine, at, like right when the movie was coming out. And I was like, maybe I should go and process. And I went to this group. It was in a hospital, which first hospitals freaking scare me. Um, secondly, the facilitation, it was in the cafeteria. So it was like uncomfortable and it was, zero structure. And it was like people just telling their traumatizing stories. And I was like, and I left and I was just like at a certain point. And I also like get tired early in the night because my brain's been on all day. And I just got up and left at a certain point. I'm like, I'm not sitting through this, but, um, but being like in our groups, it's like very structured. Like we have a topic, we have a psychoeducation piece. We have a discussion question people answer one by one. So it's not, it's, there's no like crosstalk. Then there's like weaving it in and then there's self-reflection, but it's very tightly structured. I love that. I love that. So like, and I love it too. I would never do any, like, and I tell people even at the retreat, I was like, I would never go to a retreat, but don't worry. Like we got you here. Like it's, it's all super tightly held. And I feel like really holding space is what we are doing and it um and so there's all sorts of different support groups you know we started out with pregnancy and infant loss and now there's early pregnancy loss recurrent loss and infertility termination for medical reasons um people of color um we do like an lgbtq drop-in group um pregnancy after loss parenting after loss Oh my so there's goodness. like you do so much like, I, and I because those are all such different experiences yeah I, I love how attuned you all are yeah. well and like in like for example before um I would say people who had a TFMR termination for medical reason yeah, yeah. that they could just come to the pregnancy and it's also it's like yeah of course you're welcome you lost your baby and some would come but like no they have a very unique experience uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that group is sells out all the time. Um, uh-huh. And we're 
the only like pregnancy and infant loss organization who sees that as a loss. I think there's a lot of groups out there who feel like like it's abortion and they're not going to be supportive of that. And I'm like, but these people, you don't understand. It's not, yes, they made a choice, but it's not like they, they, you know, it's for their health sometimes, or the baby is going to die or live a very disabled life. And you don't even know, you cannot get the information that you need. I mean, that's, so it is a very specific space that needs their own space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. What other things do we, we offer, um, just the website itself is a wealth of education information. Um, we have downloadable PDFs, everything that is all free. We have beautiful printed brochures for provider offices. Um, we, I'm just like, it's all like, for example, partners grieve to grandparents, siblings, um, loss of multiples, like early pregnancy loss and you don't want to like all these different things. So there's so many different topics. And then the webinars I mentioned, so like we have a YouTube channel with different playlists, which is amazing. Um, and then for providers, we offer monthly provider consultation groups. Um, one is for like more of the hospital medical providers. Mm-hmm. One is more for mental health providers. Yes. And um, I don't know. I mean, that's kind of the main. We have a pregnancy and infant loss directory also. I forgot about that. So like that has really local yeah. and virtual re- resources, depending on whether you need like counseling therapy or like a support organization psychiatry like i'm really tied into postpartum support international which offers like the perinatal mental health certification so reproductive psychiatrists you did yeah yeah Um, like so like i send everyone i'm like you need to see a reproductive psychiatrist regular psychiatrists do not know about like they give you the wrong information and i'd be like like I had someone working for me who became pregnant and they were on an antidepressant and the psychiatrist says, no, get off of it. And I said, even the OB. And I was like, and she was not, she was not able to get out of bed. I was like, oh no, we need to get you to someone who knows what they're doing. So I'm like, scary. That's scary. Yeah. So I I think you built neurodivergent, like accessible resources without even realizing that's what you were doing just by being you and by caring, like, You built this and like, cause right. Only in the last year you discovered well, your. I did like a self-diagnosis in December, which was like, um, nine ish months ago. And then a formal diagnosis. Cause I wanted to see what was going on with like trauma, like. Yeah. Because yeah. there was a significant amount of trauma from all of this, the stillbirth and stuff like that. But, um, but I got a formal diagnosis of, you know, autism, ADHD, plus some other mood disorder stuff, yeah. but I knew it all. Mm-hmm. So now I'm like very much advocate of self-diagnosis. I was like, you know what? Totally. This didn't really do anything. I mean, it validates me mm-hmm. and there's not something else hidden in there, but I was like, whatever. I'm like, it, I love that, that it, I, cause I think sometimes it can be put on this pedestal, like medical diagnosis all of a sudden huge things will change, but I love, they're like, you know, yeah. No. Well, and then it's like, they, they're like, oh, here's your diagnosis. Okay. Good luck. Nothing, nothing. And I was like, if someone, if I was that person, obviously they're not neurodivergent. If I was the person giving, doing the assessment, I would be like, Hey, here's the whole website I built. Here's the, all the blah, 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 you know, um, yeah. kind of like what you did. That mm-hmm. would be something that I would do, but they just like, okay, there you go. Mm-hmm. So which parallels your experience around pregnancy loss. Yeah. Yeah. And so I also feel like, and I cannot take this on right now, but the gap in mm-hmm. like autistic adults, like mm-hmm. giving information um, yeah. and just like, but how many people I talk to now who share, I mean, they share the same oh, my kid has autism and I'm like, and then I self-disclose 
And then they're like, I think I might too. And then I was like, here's my Google Drive with a bunch of stuff, which is totally informal. But I'm like, here's a bunch of stuff I put together. Go read I love it. That. Um, You're so good at like systematizing and building systems. And I love that. It's like a superpower that I didn't even know that I had, but yeah. it's, you know. but, but it's so, I mean, I think going back to that kind of that initial experience of coming to know so many of us soothe by getting access to information and that psycho ed piece. I mean, that's something you are so good at is building, like, here's the things that are helpful for you to know about your experience, about your body, about what to expect. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I do. I'm cognizant of time and i think the part on our agenda we maybe didn't hit was around the grieving process and i know that you mentioned like i think there were some collective rituals or practices that you felt were helpful or or that were distinct as an autistic person do you want to share a little bit about the grieving process well okay i mean i think actually for me up until i started doing the retreats there was not a lot, you know, there was basically like, I didn't have any guidance. I didn't, I mean, I don't know. And at that point, the internet was like, not really a thing. <laughs> it was so long ago. Um, and, so, and so I feel like the, my connection was very private and, and I connected or my son appeared to me as a white butterfly. Like, I feel like the the deceased of any kind can send us messages through animals, insects, things like that, or signs different, you know. There's a great couple of books out there by a, a medium named Laura Lynn Jackson, The Light Between Us and Signs. And I just love it. Just basically the veil between this, this world and the other world mm-hmm. is very thin. And I think I have a lot of like psychic abilities in terms of like being able to like, cause I'll, I'll hear everything with return to zero has been inspired mm-hmm. by other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I'm a very, very left brain person. So mm-hmm. this is not how I operate. However, mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it is very much nothing I ever would have thought I would do is like, I was being chosen to do this um and I know that sounds woo woo but it's just I so I actually love it because I'm so similar to you I'm so science-based except when it comes to like collective energy spirituality and like um I I sometimes say I feel like a lot of autistic people would have been shamans in a past life like in in historic times of like I've definitely had moments of of knowing um when something's about to happen or like these spiritual experiences that I'm like, this does not fit within my scientific frame, but um, yes. So I actually love that. And I know it sounds well too. So yeah. I often don't talk about it. And these are very real experiences I've had and that yeah. I know a lot of autistic people have. Yeah. And so I think there, you know, I didn't really do a lot. It was through the retreats, through other people who are even more connected to the spirit, I would say that the importance of bringing in ritual um, and collective ritual. So, and, and I think the biggest things we do are we like light a candle, like we sit in a, we have like our group circle and we have like this, I'll say altar, but it's not it's just on the floor. Um, and we have candles with every baby's name tied around the candle. And we light it every morning when we sit down and we, each person lights their candle, they say their baby's name. Um, so I would say, I'd like, I'd say Norbert and everyone else would say Norbert. Um, and just like, you don't ever get, if you named your baby, not all people do, but you don't ever get to hear their name spoken. And so it's really powerful. So like, that's something that we do as a group. Um, we also allow people, we set up like a memorial table that people can bring things or pictures, whatever, because that's also something that people don't always put out in their home or they put it out, but it's in this, like a more private space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't do, I don't do a lot and I sometimes feel bad about it. Right. Like it, but I know that that's just me. There isn't, you know, I think like greeting. Some, oh, sorry. No, but just like, like, right. There are societal expectations. Yes. Yes. Agreed. And also gender expectations. Yes. 
Yes. And those, especially I think for autistic women, those conflate because especially if we have alexithymia, like I definitely experienced that through my, my grief, specifically around my pregnancy losses. If I'm not doing this right, there's a right way to grieve this and I'm not doing it right. Yeah. Like I never cry. Hmm. Like, hmm. I mean, I mean, occasionally, but it is rare. And so like after my loss, I didn't cry. Um, my husband was way more emotional than I was. And I was just like super stoic. And I go to these retreats and la the last retreat I actually knew I was autistic. And so I said to everyone, I was really excited. I was like, Hey, just to let you know, um, I'm autistic and I don't show a lot of emotion. So it might look like I'm really stoic, but I do have a ton of emotion inside of me. It just doesn't show. Um, and I'm, when I'm there, I'm also it takes a tremendous amount of concentration and energy to hold space. Um, and like when Patrick talks about his retreats, I'm like preaching to the choir. Like I do this now I know. And I have to go like take a little sensory cocoon nap in the middle, like in the afternoon, but the draining, like I am drained at least a week after, like I cannot schedule anything. Um, and then you're like, at what cost? But it is so such a powerful experience. And it is such an honor to be with these women. Um, it, it's so powerful. You can't even put words to it. And it, it drains the life out of me. So mm -hmm. it's, it's very interesting. But it, yeah, yeah. Well, and there's some interesting research that like, we're more impacted by kind of the aspect of people around us. We don't always know how to identify it, which actually makes it kind of more of a sensory load, but that we pick up energy tone, a lot of us very sensitively. So, and again, there, that disconnect of like, look, maybe looking really flat, but being so deeply impacted by the emotional tone. Um, I would think, especially in grief spaces, that's a complex autistic experience. Yeah. I mean, I am hyper empathic and hypersensitive to other people's energy. Like, and that's also like, I know auditory is one of my big sensitivity areas, but energy, like literally someone walks in the room, I can sense what's going oh. on. Even if I drive outside and there's like, we had a, like a hurricane warning here a few weeks ago. And like, I didn't even put it together, but I went to the grocery store and everyone was like, and I was like, what the heck is going on? Like just yeah. superpowers, but it's hard to yeah. say what it is. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Okay. More about grieving. Like, I mean, I think the one big one is like not grieving as your, as other people think you should be grieving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is and it, I think that's a great global, like whether it's a death of a loved one, whether it is um, an identity shift. I think that's a really global, like autistic experience of the way we grieve, especially what people observe from the outside doesn't always match um, kind of the cultural expectations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think that there's also the false belief in like old grief culture that like, <laughs> Oh, like you get over your grief, you move on yeah. from your grief. Um, <laughs> and about three, I feel like for me, and I think this is similar, like people are really great for about three weeks after something bad happens. And then they all continue to go on their life and your life. Yeah. It's like, there's a before and an after, um, your life will never be the same. And you're just like standing there in shock and you're like what the heck you're like my life i can't go on and so it's this long long process of integration and processing mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. at and and other people like well are you you look better or you seem better uh, oh you know things like yeah. that like and maybe even not to me i don't know but to, i hear those all the time and you're like well this is complicated and this just doesn't happen over a week or a month 
like grieving is a lifetime and it changes mm-hmm. and like it's it's not linear at all there's mm-hmm. no stages mm-hmm. um and it's like back and forth and up and down and and you and your partner are grieving on different mm-hmm. timelines and different like phases and it's messy so messy it's so messy especially with the yeah the kind of co-grief if someone is partnered and then the the timelines don't always like sync up and that can create confusion and kind of disconnect yeah yeah i love how you're talking about grief of i'll, I'll often talk about like yeah learning how to carry the grief well but i love your language of integration and the yeah, this myth that it's like something we get over and then move on from versus like it becomes part of us and we live, we live with that in an integrated way. Um, the, and I think for like, yeah. well, Go for ahead. anyone that dies, um, you're so in, in my case of my stillbirth, like I still celebrate my son's birthday. He just mm-hmm. turned, we would have been 18 this past July. Um, mm-hmm. But people do that. That will be forever. But yeah. even with loved ones who die or not babies, like you're going to remember their birthday. You might Absolutely. remember their death day. Like those are days to like, mm-hmm. whether you do something or not, it is it is, it is is a touch point, I think. Um, but other people around you don't see that necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. They, f- they forget the touch points and yeah. They're- yeah. Yeah. You were going to say something, but you probably forgot. It's well, it's like it was in response to something you said like two comments ago. Oh. So connect. Now I was just going to share. I appreciate I appreciate the wave metaphor of grief. That was during my first I was 18 when I first had my significant loss. My my best friend in high school died of a brain tumor um, and learning. Like I remember the first week or two, it was just constant and then i remember the very first time i forgot that david had died i was in a movie theater and maybe i forgot for five minutes and then it hit me like a wave and that idea of at first like the wave it's like a tidal wave it's constant and then there might be some spacing out of the waves but like it can catch you off guard like maybe it's been a stretch since there's been a wave but there'll be some reminder remembrance and a wave can just kind of be like a sneaker wave and catch you off guard but that that imagery of waves was really helpful in that in my initial grief of like just understanding that this this is a process and it ebbs and it flows and there's some really heavy grief days and there's lower like lower impact days and i think also like one thing i i experienced myself but also hear a lot is you know you will over time have have moments of respite from that intense mm-hmm. grief right and hopefully those moments get more often and longer but there is this connection like there is an attachment with you to your loss or your baby through the pain yes and so you start feeling guilty if you uh-huh. feel if you exactly. don't feel the pain or you begin to feel moments of joy. And so teaching people that, that, okay, we don't only have to connect through pain. We can also connect through joy um, and, or through, not, or through other ways. Like there's lots of ways to connect and it. And so you can let go of the pain and ha- still remain connected. So I thought that was like, something else that I learned. I love that. Cause you're absolutely right. That can, that can, um, lead to complex grief um in the in the dsm there's a diagnosis of complex grief when essentially when people kind of get stalled in the grief process and i think it's part of that of i don't want to release my pain because this is my attachment to that person um so i love your expansion of it of there's so many ways that we can continue that attachment beyond pain yeah and so like the the term or a term is continuing bonds Mm-hmm. Um, you can go out yeah. there and go- Google that. Um, and the idea that, yes, there is a physical relationship that is not there, but there's an other, there's mm-hmm. other relationships that can continue. Yeah. So it's interesting. 
I'm going to put a plug. I, I don't know what you think of this theory, but since you said continue, continuing bonds, I'm going to put a plug out for wardens for tasks of grieving. I much appreciate that to the stages of grieving. Their action, um, they're like active steps that a person takes in the process of grieving and they're non-linear. So there's four tasks and the, and the thought is like, you will be in one of these tasks like, and you'll go back and forth and it's a process, but, but one of them has to do with the continuing bonds. Um, so, and I'll put a link in there, but that's another great, if someone is experiencing, especially, um, the loss the loss of a loved one. I think warden's tasks of grieving can provide a framework, which again is helpful for autistic people, um, to learn how to integrate that loss and live with it. Well, I'll look it up. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you, I'll send you a link. Um, I, yeah. I know we're sort of running short. I just have one other thing that I, that I didn't really think out bef about before that I think is important. So, right. As autistic people, our friend circle can be small, very, yeah. very small. <laughs> yes. And, and so I know that like we talk about like in our relationships module, like with your partner, that your partner is also grieving and you can't be the only support for each other. Mm -hmm. However, when you're autistic and you yeah. don't have a lot of other people to talk to, um, that's really hard. Like, um, and like for years, the amount of therapists I try to find that didn't understand my experience at all. I mean, I, you know, and so being really lonely and it wasn't until I met other people who had been through this that I was like, oh my gosh, like, like you get what I've been through. And it's the same as being autistic, but just like being with other people who've been through this type of loss and not having to explain yourself. Like those are my closest relationships now. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's lonely. Yeah, yeah. I, I think after this episode records, if you start an autistic pregnancy loss group, I think that would fill up really fast. But the question is, do people know they're autistic? Oh, that's, you know, but here, here's, it, probably not. Like I definitely didn't when I was going through and I would imagine a lot of people, even five, 10 years later, would still benefit actually from, yeah, because I do think that we perhaps are more prone to getting stalled in our grief process because of alexithymia, mm. because of interoception, because we of lack of community. So I actually think people who have now since discovered yeah. their autistic, even if, if this was 10, 12 years ago, like would still benefit. Yeah, very You can test my hypothesis. We'll let me know. Or you can be like, if you suspect you're autistic. Yes. If you yeah. have an autistic child or you're highly sensitive. Because that's you a highly sensitive person. Because I attached to the highly sensitive person yeah. thing about like five years yeah. ago. Like that was my yeah. language. That, that's um, the pathway for a lot of, especially women, I notice. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. That, that's all. I mean, we could keep on talking forever, but. Um, there's a lot of things in here. There are so many interweaving themes, which is kind of what we do here. We try to create space for how complex these topics are. And I think we definitely did that today. There's a lot of interweaving pieces here between identity, autism, loss, grief, um, advocating in medical systems. There's a lot here. Thank you so much for the generosity of your time. Like I know you're wildly busy, um, but also just the generosity of sharing of yourself and your experience and of the community that you've built. Um, I think it's interesting. This episode might be listened to less because people will see the title and be like, I don't relate to that. But I think the people that listen to this will be so deeply impacted because, because of what you said of there are so few spaces for autistic people to talk about this and our worlds tend to be small. So I think the impact of this episode for those who relate to this subject, um, I think will be really incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Like, I feel like I have been devouring your podcasts. I've been like, I haven't done this so deep dive into your website because there's so much, but just like I joined 
I join your membership and I just, just because I want to learn about myself. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so amazing to find language, to feel validated um, and that you both are so vulnerable and that it's hard to do that, I think. But um, like what what is most personal and intimate is really most universal and people identify and I know that they're grateful. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Okay. Well, awkward goodbye time. So new episodes are out every single Friday on all major platforms and we will see you next week. And now pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.